Welcome back to the Axiom Youth Podcast. This lesson is entitled The Problem of Pain Part 2, taught by Brother Jared Turner. This is a continuation of our series called Spell It Out. The youth submitted questions and we have developed lessons based off their questions. We hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. questions that you had and and I want to give it to you that you had very very good questions and so we wanted to address those not just like within a five minute thing but we wanted to take time and address them um, very in detail and so the first one that we were tackling uh, I've called the problem of pain because somebody wrote in and said how how could I believe in God if he allowed me to be abused as a child. Now, I, I, I no doubt that could, that could very well be somebody in this room right now that you have no idea that that's gone through that. Um, we don't know. But whether or not it's a true story or whether or not it's a hypothetical, it's a good question. Because you've got to know, right? Because there are people that deal with incredible amounts of pain in their life. So last week, I introduced the problem of pain. And the basic tenet of that, just to review for those of you that might not have been here, was that Christianity does not answer in some small way the problem of pain, just like give an answer that's neat and packaged and tied up with a bow. But the very nature of Christianity creates the problem of pain. And what I meant by that was if we were just a little bit higher form of animal, we would not be aware that there is a problem with suffering. That would just be a part of our daily life. But because God created us, and he created us in his image to be able to discern right from wrong. We can look at an abusive situation and say, that is wrong. That should not have happened to me. Now, that was not solved by God going away. That pain and that hurt is not solved by God going away. In fact, it's really the opposite. Because if there was no God, then there would be no basis for you to say, what happened to me was wrong. Because it was just one animal acting like an animal to another animal. It would just be, if that's all there is, materialism. Right? So that was my point, was that Christianity creates the problem of pain. The fact that your heart cries out and says, what happened to me was unjust. That feeling of justice comes from God. God gave you that feeling of justice. God allowed it to be in there. And then I gave the example that C.S. Lewis gives about your mom asking you to clean your room as an example to how can God's will be accomplished when people have free will. So God gave you and everyone else in the world the ability to choose good or evil. And that has limited how he operates in the world. He put that limitation on himself because he wanted real people that really love him and that he could really redeem and pull out. Not robots that had to do everything that he said. That would not, that's not what God desired. That's not what God created. So God created somebody that could choose. Just like your mom might empower you to say, I'm going to 
tell you and give you the choice on whether or not to clean your room because I want you to learn responsibility. Or like my mom did to me when I was a teenager, you're going to do your own laundry. I'm not going to do your laundry anymore. You're going to learn how to do your laundry and how to be responsible. Now, it was not in her will that I would load the, the washer so full that I would break the belt because I had waited so long to do laundry and it was emergency status, right? It was, I'm going to either have clothes tomorrow or I'm going to wear my pajamas to school. So I loaded the laundry full and it broke the washer and it caused a big repair bill. Now that was not in her will. She did not want to have a repair bill for the washer, but she allowed it by allowing an inexperienced teenager who was learning responsibility to have free responsibility and to make choices that were, and this is a very small example, not that wise, to wait until the very end to do laundry and then cram everything I owned in the washer and try to wash it until the belt broke because it was out of balance because I had packed it too full. So it was sort of in her will that the, the washer would be broken. She allowed it to happen by giving, by stepping back her all-powerful control over the laundry because mom controls the laundry. And she knew what she was doing, and she's an expert in laundry. And she could have made sure that I had clothes every day of the week. She could have made sure that they were ironed or pressed and I never went to school looking hit. She could have made sure that the washer never broke. She could have made, she could have done that. But what would I have learned? What would I have been able to be involved in my own life? She understood that I needed to have the freedom to make choices. So that's the decision that God made for us at the beginning. I'm going to create a being that's in my image, meaning that they can make decisions like I can make decisions. That they can choose what to do like I can make decisions and choose what to do. That they can be creative and have a, a, some power in this world. That's the kind of being that you are. But there comes with consequences. Just philosophically, that comes with consequences. That because God cannot create you free and then create Aiden unfree so that Aiden never steals your stuff. So that Aiden cannot have a thought of evil towards you. So that not one person cannot be robbed of their free will just because they're going to do wrong. Because God created that limitation. And so God allowed for a choice to be made. And when Adam made the wrong choice, like I've said before, the choice in the beginning was very simple. There was not a whole bunch of knowledge of good and evil. There was just one choice. Do not eat of this tree. That was it. That's all God wanted there to be. He wanted there to be one choice to live for him. One decision. But when man made the wrong decision, it brought in a whole myriad of other possibilities for their life. And they became aware and they became capable of an, of an indescribable evil because they made one choice. That is a fallen nature. So now we're living in this fallen world where people take advantage of other people. Where there is murder and where there is robbery and where there is abuse and where there is assault. And it's an and abandonment and betrayal. And you're thinking, what is going on? How could God allow that to be? But you have to understand from the beginning what God created you to be and that he has power. So that's what I taught on last week is that, that it's the nature of humanity itself that God created that has limited his ability 
his, he's limited his own ability to come in and change people's thoughts from good to evil. He doesn't do that to your thoughts. He allows the rotten thoughts to th sit in your head until you expel them. Because he's given you the free capacity to work on your own mind and your own heart. So he gives that to everybody else too. So that runs into problems when somebody sets their heart against you to do something selfish or evil against you. And then you're like, how could God exist? How could God even be here? And that's a valid feeling in your heart. But you've got to think about it with your head. That's what I, that's what I started with is in the head last week about the, the philosophy of how God created us. And that that feeling inside of you that this is unjust comes from God. And that is a testimony that God is real. That feeling in your heart that this is unjust, this is wrong, this should not have happened. You're right, it should not have happened. But if there is no God, it should have happened. Because it's survival of the fittest. Because it's the stronger animal. Because the lion does not ask permission to eat the baby sick gazelle. The one that has a limp, that's the easiest one. He does not pick on someone his own size because he's an animal. Animals do what animals do, and they instinctively look out for themselves. So if all we are is animals, then get used to it. Get used to it. Get used to abandonment and abuse and brokenness because that's all there is, and that really shouldn't even be abandonment, abuse, and brokenness. That should just be called the way of life. But that's not the way of life. When that happens to us, it violates our life. And we say, this isn't right. This is what was, was not what it was supposed to be. And that's right. You have a correct feeling because God created you in his image to know this is wrong. This is not my, how I was designed. And you feel that deep down in your heart. So hopefully you believe me. And you understand, and I've got it clicked in your mind, that God is real. And the, the pain does not cause God a problem. The only reason we know it's a problem is because God created us. So now we're going to deal with the heart and talk about what the Bible says about pain. The problem of pain. And I, what I want, my only real point, I've got four scriptures, a few sub points, but just one main point. Is that the problem of pain in the Bible can be summed up in the message of the cross. It can be summed up completely in the very center of the Christian faith that really no other faith addresses this problem like Christianity because it is the truth and because that image of the cross is what is it's the center of our faith because it is the point of history upon which the whole world turns. The life and the death of Jesus. Everything in history turns around that because it was so significant. Because it answered such a deep question about the nature of humanity and the problem of pain. It is answered in the cross. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 9 to start. That's our first verse. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 9. And just to give you a little bit of context, maybe go back and, but that's the verse we're going to focus on. But Paul says that in verse number 7, at 
lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. So he's, I want you to really understand what he said. So Paul said, I'm used greatly of God. I'm a great preacher. I mean, he acknowledges that God uses me. He gives me great revelation. Almost half of the New Testament was written by one man, Paul. Now you could get kind of arrogant and prideful about that. I mean, your, your writings are being taken as scripture to be read for thousands of years. So Paul said, unless I get exalted above my station, the Lord has, there has been something, that thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. So I want you to catch that, though, because the messenger of Satan. So here we see this conflict right here of Satan, the enemy, being involved in Paul's life. But yet, look how he phrases it. It's working somehow on his behalf, even though Satan is doing it. And Satan is not on your side. The enemy of your soul is not for you. He is against you. And so there are things that come into your life that the enemy will put there. When somebody is assaulted, going back to our question, and somebody that is brutalized or somebody that is betrayed or somebody that is hurt or broken, it is not God's doing. It is Satan's doing. It is the enemy. It is the enemy, the spirit of the enemy working to destroy, working to kill, working to crush. But look what Paul says, that there was something given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to attack me or to push against me or to resist me. That's what that word means, buffet, to, to just come against me and attack me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing, verse 8, I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. So I prayed, God, I do not want this. The enemy is bringing it against me. God, you're more powerful than the enemy. Why are you allowing it in my life? I want it gone. I want you, this is not just some stagnant words on a page by some old dude that doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a real human life. And this was something, we don't know what this was, but the, the Apostle Paul is beseeching the Lord and he knows how to pray. I mean, if anybody knows how to pray, it was the Apostle Paul. Knows how to get a hold of God. And I would imagine the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, the Bible says. So you can imagine that Paul's prayers were heartfelt and they were, they were effectual. They were fervent. They had passion behind them. God, I want this gone. I don't want you to just see black and white words on a page. I want you to feel the emotion of the man. God, I want this gone. I want this out of my life. I, I'm tired of this. I am tired of the enemy coming in and abusing me and pushing me and confronting me and all of these problems. I want it out of my life. Three times he went back. And for God, I want this out of my life. No answer the first time. No answer the second time. And then on the third time, an answer came. But it is not the answer you might expect. And if you have a red letter edition, these words, verse 9 is in red. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, we can gloss over that. Kind of like the verse in Romans, all things work together for good. And we can just kind of slap that on problems and say, well, God's working it out. God's working it out. And just kind of glaze over somebody's real hurt. 
and real betrayal and real pain. But that's not what the Bible does. It's not just kind of glances on it and it's too controversial so we just move off. I want you to really understand the power of the words that the Lord spoke to Paul. He didn't say that I'm going to take your weakness away or that you won't feel weak or that it won't be a true hurt or a true pain that you will walk through life with. He did not say I'm going to deliver you from it. He did not say I'm going to take the pain and the hurt away. But what he does, the weakness is still there. But not your strength is made perfect, but my strength is made perfect. An understanding of who you have to rely on. An understanding of really who it is that you are trusting in. Now, how can that be? How can that be? How can strength and weakness coincide in one human life? How can such pain and such hurt ever be used by God? It's not in a simple way. It's not in just like a little. I I told the account last week of the family in my home church that lost their daughter. And people tried to make meaning out of that and it it was it seems so empty that one little good thing happened when something so tragic happened so it, it can't just be blanket applied to everybody because there's a deep meaning here and i'm going to build the case for it because like i said it's centered around the cross first corinthians chapter number 1 And verse number 18 is where we're going next. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 18. I really really want to help somebody today. And if you haven't gone through some pain or some hurt in your life, no doubt there's coming a day when you will. And so I don't want your faith in that day to be shaken to to say, where is God? I want you to know where to turn. And I want you to understand the kind of God that we serve. Verse number 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So Paul is saying that those who don't understand... Those who don't see the need for Christianity are going to think that the message of a cross, why do you worship a weak Savior that died a criminal's death, humiliated and betrayed? Why do you worship Him? Why it is foolishness to those that have no life, to those who see the world as material things. They worship power. They worship action. They worship people that can get things done. They value competence. And anybody that lives 33 years to be the Messiah and is so incompetent at that raising up Israel from the grip of the Roman army that he ends up dying a humiliated death. How could you worship that kind of God? How could you worship that kind of person? But to them which are saved to those who have seen the power of the cross work. That is not a weak moment. 
in the story of Christianity, but it is the most powerful moment that exists in all of human history is when Jesus died on the cross. Because I want you to get a picture and understand. You say, you don't understand the pain and the hurt that I'm going through, and I would be the first to admit that I do not understand. There are some things in here that some of you have faced that I have never faced, that my wife has never faced. That perhaps Brother Thomas or Sister Hannah or the person sitting next to you has never faced. But there is not, let me listen to me closely, there is not a problem or a pain or a betrayal that Jesus has not faced. I'm not talking about God in heaven, the Almighty Spirit. I'm talking about God on earth, the man who suffered and died. He has faced it. And he knows where you're at. That's why Christianity can deal with suffering. Because it created the problem of knowing that this is wrong. And then it answers the problem. Not in some philosophical high-minded way of God just saying magically let everything be okay. But God saying I've given you free will. And I know that's created a bunch of problems in your life because this person betrayed you and this person hurt you and this person destroyed you. I know it's a big problem. So I'm going to come myself into the problem that you created and I'm going to submit myself to the same pain that you are going through so that I can redeem every part of your life. So that I can transform even the darkest places of your heart. Even the things that have been so broken in your life. I can transform it. I can renew it. I can make it new. Because I have experienced it. Because it's not a simple fix. It was a messy fix. It was something that took time and energy and much suffering to cure. That's what God does with your pain. He does not treat it trivially. He does not just alleviate it all together. But he says, I'm here to do something different. I'm here to redeem. I'm here to change the playing field. I'm here to drastically alter the course of human history. Because I want you to understand what actually happened to Jesus. And I know I've talked about it before, but you just need to be reminded of the brutality of the crucifixion. Because the image is so prevalent. And because people treat it pretty casually. Not all the time, but, you know, there's lots of crosses on walls and crosses on necklaces and crosses this and crosses that. And it just becomes a part of our culture. We put crosses, giant crosses up on the interstate. And I'm not, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'd, I'd rather them put a cross up than anything else. But it can ge- become trivialized in some way. And we can forget the true meaning and the true power of it and the brutality of it. After he was arrested, he was put into a pit In the home of Caiaphas, I've been to the place they think that it might be because it was a house about that time, a wealthy house occupied by Jewish hierarchy. And there was a pit that you had to just be dropped into and pulled out with ropes. And they believe that's where he probably spent the night, his first night, because he was arrested in the middle of the night and the Roman courts did not open till the next morning when he could stand before Pilate. But the Bible does say that they blindfolded him. The Jews, his own people, they blindfolded him. And they smacked him in the face. And they said, prophet, prophesy, who hit you? 
Give us the name. And then they would do it again. And then they would do it again. And don't, don't forget that the whole reason that he's there is because one of his own disciples betrayed him. They could not touch Jesus because he was so popular. They had to arrest him at night, but they did not know where he went at night to find him without the multitudes of people around him. So they had to rely on a traitor to lead them to him. So he experienced a betrayal of somebody that was close to him. So if you've been betrayed, Jesus knows what you're going through. If you've been betrayed by somebody close to you, Jesus knows what you're going through because he was also God and God has a great capacity for love. And God never stops loving people even when they do horrible things. So Jesus, as God, loved Judas and opened himself up to Judas and was betrayed even more deeply because Jesus was not a guarded individual because he loved because he was perfect and he loved everybody and he loved Judas and Judas betrayed him. The pain of that. And then the people that God's chosen people, the leaders of God's chosen people had him in this pit and they were slapping him in the face. The next morning they brought him to Pilate to stand trial. All he would answer Pilate is... Thou sayest, thou sayest. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you a rebel rouser like they say? Thou sayest, thou sayest. He sends him to Herod to try to clear the situation politically. He doesn't say a word to Herod. Herod laughs at him and says, this, this guy's a fool. Sends him back. Pilate wants to release him, but the crowd that once worshipped him has been whipped up into a fury by their leaders, by the Jewish leaders, and they're chanting, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, he was a man. You understand, everybody in the place was against him. Yelling, crucify him. Crucify You think that does something to a person psychologically when everybody is against you? Yelling, crucify him. This was not bullying in the lunchroom by three or four idiot young people. This was everybody. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone, ostracized, pushed out. His own disciples too afraid to even be there, running and hiding. Crucify him. Crucify him. He heard Peter curse and say, I never knew the man. And he looked at Peter in the eye when Peter said that. Betrayed, alone. Crucify him. Pilate says, I wash my hands, do unto him as you see fit. So he turns him over to his soldiers who were experts in not only killing but torture. They strip him of all his clothes. They put a purple robe to mock him as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns on his head, pressing into his scalp, blood running down, and then they beat him with sticks. And they spit in his face. Mocked alone broken. Jesus knows what you're going through when you bring any hurt to him because he's had it happen to him. Abused, abandoned by those he loved. No one there for him. Everyone against him. Mocked and beaten. Then he was stripped of his clothes again and beaten with the, the cat of nine tails to rip the flesh from his back. 
People say, experts say, that the beating alone could have killed him if they would have just left him there. He could have just slumped to the ground and died within, you know, a day or so, untreated. Those wounds would have infected and killed him. That was enough to kill him, but they weren't going to stop there. This was in the will and the plan of God because he said, I want you to know that I know what you're going through. I know the hurt and the pain that you have been through to the degree that you even can understand. I can identify with you. They put his own robe back on him and they marched him through the city. Ashamed. The death of a criminal. They march you through the city on purpose to show off that this is what happens to people that defy our power. It's a humiliation tactic. It's a fear tactic. It was a very different world back then. There was no such thing as humane treatment of prisoners. They, they were there to destroy you and to crush you, to crush you psychologically and bodily before you. they snuffed out your life. Marched him through the streets, up the Calvary's hill. One bit of kindness, they did allow someone to carry the cross because he was too physically weak to carry his own cross. But they started by making him carry the own instrument of his death. The pain, the hurt. Then they stripped him of his clothes again. Because it was a spectacle to die. A crucifixion. It was a humiliation. And they put in three languages the king of the Jews. And nailed it to the cross above his head. As one final mocking that the king of the Jews is dying a lowly criminal's death. Naked and bleeding. And abandoned and alone and no friends to help him. The great preacher, the great Messiah, the one who could feed the 5,000 people and people would rush into the wilderness to hear him teach is now dying a criminal's death. Jesus knows where you're at. He can identify with you. He can identify with you. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 makes that point that we have not an high priest that is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted like we are, so he understands the temptation, but infirmities, the, the hard things, he knows. He is touched. That's what I want to focus on. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what you're going through. He knows the loss and the abandonment and the brokenness and the hurt that is in your life. He knows there's nothing too big that you can bring to him that he says, I, I can't deal with that. I don't know what you're talking about or that he's insensitive to it because he allowed himself to be put in the hands of sinners. He said that in Luke chapter 24, verse number 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners. Jesus knows what it's like to be taken advantage of. Jesus knows what it's like to be the victim. So you say, how could God create such a world that I could be a victim? How could God create such a world and such a creature that could victimize me so brutally and so harshly? How could God do that? Well, I've explained it in the mind how that has to happen for there to be free will. 
But I don't expect you just to accept that kind of philosophical thinking in your mind and say, okay, I'm okay with my suffering. But I'm here to get it into your heart that Jesus said, I know that this world has been broken and that you are living in a tough time and that you are living where there's hurt and there's pain. But I want to show you how far I'm willing to come to save you, how far I'm willing to come to identify with you so that you can feel a kinship with me, not just as this all-powerful God that you will die if you enter my presence or that you will die if you touch the Ark of the Covenant or you will die if you see my face. That's not how I want to relate to you. But I want to relate to you as somebody that is abused and broken and pushed aside and abandoned and hurt and beat, brutalized. And he hung there for hours, hours having to lift himself up to breathe. That's how crucifixion kills you. Most of the time, historians say crucifixion victims were just simply tied to the cross. And that eventually they would just break your legs so that you could no longer lift yourself up to get a breath and you would die of suffocation. But they did not. This was a different kind of crucifixion because they did not tie Jesus to the cross. But they nailed him. To the cross. They nailed him to the cross. And yes, he was there to take away all of your sin because that is the price of a sinful world. And if you've been through some sort of abandonment and hurt, that's because we live in a sinful world. Jesus came to pay the price for your own sin, but he also came to identify with you as a victim of sin. Because not only do we, are we guilty, because everyone in here is guilty of perpetrating sin on somebody else. But no doubt, many of you have been the recipient of a sinful decision from somebody else. Somebody else made a horrible decision that affected you deeply. And Jesus says, I can identify with that too. So not only was Jesus on the cross to pay for your sin, but he's on the cross to identify with the sin that others have put on you. The way others have mistreated you and mishandled you. Because there were thousands of people, probably, I don't know the exact number, that had died a similar death, maybe not quite as brutal, but a similar death as Jesus. He was crucified with two other men. And so the message of the cross is that while everyone else who died that death, their suffering was deserved because they were there because they were criminals, which is what the, the, the first thief or the second thief, whichever, how you want to number them, one of the thieves said, is that this man didn't deserve it. We deserved our fate. He didn't deserve it. So every other form of suffering is just pointless. It's just meaningless suffering. If there was no God, your suffering would be meaningless. Your life would be hard because that's just the nature of life. That's just the animal kingdom in which we live in. Survival of the fittest is a very harsh reality. It's pointless. 
There's, there's no point to suffering. But see, Jesus was different. Because not only did he suffer immensely, but his suffering had a purpose. His suffering had a purpose to save you. And so the Bible says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Because Jesus took what was an imaginable amount of suffering and turned it into the greatest purpose in human history so that he could do the same thing for you. It doesn't make the pain go away. It didn't make the because he was God didn't make that the fact that the nails still hurt and the abandonment still hurt and the humiliation still hurt and the chanting still hurt and the whips still hurt and the suffocating to death still hurt. And the piercing of his side still hurt didn't make that go away. But he showed us. He showed us that if you submit your suffering to me, I can make it have a purpose. And then he said, when he rose from the dead, he said, just as I have risen from the dead, so can you arise from the dead. Not just in some sort of metaphorical way, although I do believe in the newness of life in this life, but I'm talking about literally in another life. And so ultimately, suffering points us to the fact that we were not created for this world, but we were created for another world. That we, one day when the trumpet sounds, and when Jesus comes back for His church, those who have been born again, those who have taken their suffering and taken up their cross, the Bible says, that means all the suffering that you've had, that is your cross. You take that cross and you follow Him. And you follow him up Calvary's hill and you follow him through the pain and the hurt and you just keep following him. And yes, he gives you strength along the way and less, yes, he helps you. But you know what? This life is never going to be perfect. You're never go- Yes, I believe in the blessed life. I believe in living a life of holiness. And I believe that gives you blessing and power and authority in this life. But you know what? Your life will never be perfect. Your life will never be without hardship. Your life will never be without some sort of mountain to climb until the day that you hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. That's where there's no more suffering. That's where there are no more tears. So suffering in this life just propels you to look for the next life. It's not easy. It doesn't mean you won't ever walk with a limp. It doesn't mean you won't ever have a scar. It doesn't mean you won't ever have some sort of wound that you have to carry and you have to burden yourself with, but it just helps you remember I'm not living for this life. Christianity is not scared by your problems. God does not shrink back when you say, I don't, I don't understand how this suffering can be allowed in my life. He can say, I've been there. I know what you're going through. So I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to dismiss. I hope you heard my heartbeat today because this, I'm not trying to trivialize anybody's pain. Whoever submitted that question, that was an excellent question.